Hello and welcome to another episode of the Toasted Tale podcast. My name is Jim, and today I want to look at what happens when a situation goes horribly wrong. In particular, I want to look at how the Challenger space disaster occurred and the devastating impact it had on the people surrounding it. First though, I want to list off some names for you. Francis Dick Scobie Michael J. Smith Ellison S. Onizuka Judith A. Resnick Ronald E. McNair Krista McAuliffe and Gregory B. Jarvis Seven individuals who in the morning of January 1986 took on a task which is so unnatural for us humans and something many of us never get the opportunity and can only dream of doing. They got inside of a space shuttle and began the journey destined to outer space. Now, to give a little bit of context, the year of 1986 was shaping up to be one of the most ambitious ones yet for NASA's space shuttle program. The agency's plans called for up to 15 missions in the year, including their first flight from their West Coast launch site in Vandenberg Air Force Base in California. There were many objectives that were to be completed throughout what was to be called the STS-51L mission, such as deploying tracking and data relays, retrieving satellites, and completing research and teaching objectives as well. Some of the satellite work that would have been completed on this mission would have contributed to the network of satellites in geostationary Earth orbit that, once completed, would have allowed for near-continuous communications during shuttle missions. Another interesting tidbit whilst up there was about the observation of Halley's Comet, which was making its return to the inner solar system in its 76-year orbit around the Sun. The hope was that the Spartan-Haley astronomy satellite, developed by NASA's Goddard Space Flight Center in Greenbelt, Maryland, would be able to contribute to integrated studies conducted by several international spacecraft on the comet. And so clearly, this space mission had many objectives and was very important to NASA, and the wider space community. I want to touch upon the Challenger disaster, but if we're going to light a candle in the window, for those individuals who were on the shuttle as the events unfolded, I think it's important to get to know them a little bit better, understand them as people so we can put a bit more weight to the situations which happened all that time ago. Starting with Francis Dick Scobie, the commander of the vessel. 
He enlisted in the US Air Force and trained as a reciprocating engine mechanic. But longing to fly, he took night courses and applied himself. So in 1965 completed a Bachelor of Science degree in Aerospace Engineering from the University of Arizona. This made it possible for Scobie to receive an officer's commission and enter the Air Force pilot training program. Scobie also married June Kent of San Antonio, Texas, where together they had their two children, Kathy and Richard, in the early 60s. He enjoyed flying, oil painting, woodworking, motorcycling, racquetball, jogging, and to be fair, most outdoor sports. Next up was Michael J. Smith, the pilot, and a distinguished pilot he was, flying for both military and civilian aircraft, clocking in almost 5,000 hours of flying time, even before beginning his career with NASA. He had three children with his wife Jane Jarrell, Scott, Allison, and Erin. Smith was an athletic type who played tennis and squash. He also played football and participated in boxing while at the Navy Academy. Although he loved being in the Navy and served with distinction, he told his wife and friends that moving to NASA would give him more time with his family an opportunity he cherished. Thirdly, we've got Ellison S. Onisuka. On the website to Ellison, there is a quote which goes like this. Quote, Imagine a young boy on a small island in the middle of the Pacific Ocean, laying on his back, staring at a star-speckled sky, and dreaming. Dreaming of someday going higher than the birds, high enough to reach and touch those distant stars above." End quote. After pushing himself and finding success in schooling and achieving a Masters of Science degree in 1969, against stiff competition, around 8,000 applicants, Ellison was selected in 1978 as one of 35 astronauts for NASA's Space Shuttle program. He was the first Japanese-American selected to participate in America's space program. He had a loving wife named Lorna and two daughters, and in his spare time enjoyed running, hunting, fishing, and other indoor and outdoor sports. Our fourth crew member was one Judith A. Resnick, a mission specialist and electrical engineer. Now, by all accounts, she was an incredibly talented individual who was described in her youth as being very strong-minded, bright, disciplined, and talented at whatever she set out to learn and do. Achieving a master's and PhD studying electrical engineering from the University of Maryland, she sidestepped using that knowledge and experience, and then becoming qualified as a professional aircraft pilot, which surely would have aided in the rigorous application process for NASA. 
selected as one of six other women to join NASA in their most recent recruitment drive, she would go on to become the second woman from America to go into space when she was aboard an earlier spaceflight, the Discovery. The next member of the crew that I want to talk about, and I apologise that I'm talking through many at a time, but I want to ensure that each member of the crew gets a little bit of time in the spotlight for us to understand them a little bit better for this episode. The next member of the crew was a man named Ronald E. McNair, another mission specialist and physicist. Now this guy was a multi-talented individual who graduated from MIT in 1976 after receiving four honorary doctorates as well as a score of fellowships and commendations. Now ladies and gentlemen, that is no easy task. But he went on to become nationally recognised for his work in the field of laser physics. And this may lead you to believe that he was just some very intelligent man, but actually he had another side. A bit of a badass side to him, really. He was also a fifth degree black belt, which during his martial arts training would help him win an AAU karate gold medal, and claim victory at five subsequent regional championships. On top of that, he would become the second African-American to fly in space. Next up, we have Gregory B. Jarvis, a payload specialist this time. Now, growing up, he was involved heavily in sports and music. He achieved a master's degree in electrical engineering from Northeastern University, while also being a classical guitarist. After finishing his time at university, he became a captain in the Air Force, which followed moving to Hughes Aircraft and then on to NASA afterwards. His wife, Marcia, noticed and was first impressed with him at his ability to be friends with pretty much everyone. He always encouraged the people he was with, and after they married, they took many vacations, riding tandem bicycles, for sometimes hundreds of miles each trip. And if I, and possibly many of you listening today, needed a excuse to feel a little bit dumb (laughs) and unaccomplished after listening to these six highly skilled, highly intelligent and accomplished NASA astronauts, then you may have allowed it to let slip that I only mentioned six individuals. There was a seventh, however. On August the 27th, 1984, President Ronald Reagan announced an initiative where he wanted a teacher to be put into space. There were many reasons for this. Primarily, it was designed, though, to inspire students, honour teachers, and spur interest in mathematics, science, and space exploration. From more than 10,000 applicants, NASA selected 10 finalists to undergo interviews and medical screenings at NASA's Johnson Space Center, On July 19th, Vice President George H.W. Bush announced the winner of the competition. 
This being New Hampshire middle school teacher, Krista McAuliffe. Now, Krista was an extraordinary educator who taught American history and English in both Maryland and Concord, New Hampshire later. Even with her current calling in education, she always had the dream to travel to space. And so it was a no-brainer when NASA announced the contest to take a teacher to space. She, of course, leapt at the opportunity. This was, after all, the chance to become the first civilian in space. An opportunity she was encouraged and supported to do by her husband Stephen McAuliffe and her two children, Scott and Caroline. With Krista on board, we had our seven crew members, and also it would be only the second time that NASA had assigned two women to a single mission, with both Krista and Judith playing important roles in the operation. Now, as you can imagine, there was a massive amount of preparation and training that went into the whole Challenger space program before they would launch. They needed to train every member of crew up to a standard where everyone at NASA felt that they could take care of everything that would happen, any eventuality that within reasonable bounds they would be able to have sway over. They needed to be able to handle it. In total, we can see from our modern perspective, the Challenger cost the United States of America $3.2 billion. And so when that sort of money is being spent, there's a lot of people that need to uh, be appeased. There's a lot of boxes that need to be checked. With projects this size, there also is an undercurrent which can be of concern. When you've got a lot of highly paid, intelligent people who have been working on one project for many, many years, then there are deadlines and there is pressure to see results from all this hard work. Effectively, there is a lot of weight on the shoulders of every NASA employee related to the Challenger shuttle, that the launch goes well and everyone can turn around to their bosses and receive a well done, good job. We have a rocket that is sent up into space and everyone can celebrate, pat each other on the back. Well done everyone, congratulations. Now, having pride and passion in your work and a desire to see results is healthy and, and really good, but it can also, if not handled and managed correctly, can cause problems. The launch date was January the 28th, 1986, and it was a massive deal for the nation. Uh, major news outlets were covering the event as it was happening, and so we get a really interesting, almost blow-by-blow blow of the day, and we have a Frank Motek, who was an eyewitness to the launch and was able to give some really interesting insights into the minute-by-minute and hour-by-hour of the events that took place on the day. 
Of the morning of the 28th of January 1986, he wrote, quote, On the morning of January 28th, I let my Tutsuville hotel room at 3.30, not anticipating the freezing cold. I did not have the proper clothing, only a sweater and sports jacket. I ran through the cold to my car for the 15-mile drive. I ran with a typewriter and tape recorder to the NASA press room, where a NASA official told me there was no problem with launching a shuttle in such cold weather." End quote. The cold weather would indeed prove to be a problem, however. But he goes on to talk about how he was setting up the uh, radio preparations for the launch, but once again mentions the air that was very cold and dry, but also that the sky was crystal clear and magnificent with an orangey glow from the sun rising. He mentioned also on the NASA video monitors a very similar scene today as from the day previous on January the 27th where the Challenger's launch was scrubbed initially because of a faulty hatch handle and poor weather. It's interesting, I find, the memories that our brain chooses to hold on to, and I wonder whether it's hindsight that plays a big part in these thoughts sticking in his mind, with NASA officials saying that everything is fine. He goes on to talk a bit about his observations of the crew in the early day. He says, quote, We watched the crew members gather together for breakfast, take their trip to the launch pad, put on their spacesuits and board their spaceship. We saw Krista McAuliffe smile as a technician gave her an apple. Challenger's launch that morning was delayed until 11.38 because of a computer problem and concern about the icicles on the launch pad service tower. Nevertheless, confident that low temperatures would not hinder a launch, NASA continued the countdown." End quote. His recollection continues as the launch time approached. Apparently him and his colleague Christopher Glenn moved into the studio as the launch got closer. They sat themselves in front of their microphones, tuned in to the NASA commentators just to ensure that everything was fine. But he, he says something interesting, I find, how in this small studio room he could see on buses filled with spectators who were arriving to be placed and so they could watch in VIP seat bleachers the launch. At 11.37, Christopher Glenn begins his CBS News broadcast, which goes on for about three minutes. And there was a, there's a few things in this quote that I find interesting that I would like to uh, highlight. He talks a little bit about Krista McAuliffe and what she planned to learn in space, but then goes into the delays that have happened to this particular launch, saying, quote, he then asked me on the air about the delays which had plagued NASA in the first month of 1986. I said the slew of postponements could not have come at a worse time since it was supposed to be the busiest year for NASA, with a total of 15 shuttle missions scheduled. I also noted that the first two missions of 86, Columbia and now Challenger, had suffered technical problems 
and uncooperative weather, end quote. Interesting, isn't it? Those little hints to technical problems, delays, bad weather conditions. Little did anyone know how important these would be. From NASA, however, all the appearances showed confidence, with the NASA commentator beginning the countdown for the launch. Frank Motek then goes on to describe what appeared to be a completely normal liftoff. Having covered previous ones, he knew what to expect with the thick exhaust smoke coming out the back, the loud thunderous noise as the boosters fired the Challenger up, and after one minute into the flight, Glenn concluded that the launch had gone to schedule, signing off the broadcast thinking that their work was now concluded. Motek then goes on to say, quote, I reached across the table and shook hands with Glenn, thinking our work and all the delays were finally over. Just then we both stood up and looked up at the shuttle making its way farther and farther into the sky. Suddenly I was struck by a pattern I had never seen before. From our vantage point it appeared that an extra flame was trailing from the shuttle. Then in that split second a silent fireball appeared in the sky. Then there was silence. The silence of alarm on the mission control line. Glenn immediately signalled our technician Bob to get back on the air for an emergency net alert report." End quote. According to Frank, the voice of mission control was firing on the line, and coupled with eerie feedback, they heard flight controllers here looking at the situation very carefully, obviously a major malfunction. And then, some seconds later, we have no downlink. Clearly shaken, the technician re-cues Glenn as they go back onto the air. Quote, This is Christopher Glenn at the Kennedy Space Center in Florida. There is a major problem which developed just a few seconds into the flight. We could see it happen. There seems to be some kind of explosion aboard the rocket and all of a sudden all communication with the spacecraft was lost. It looks as if debris is falling out of the sky. It almost appears as if one of the solid rocket boosters or one of the spacecraft's main engines went awry and something happened." End quote. Frank then compares what he is seeing in front of him as monumental making it sound as akin to the importance of viewing the Hindenburg explosion as this unbelievable historical event flaring right in their faces. He talks about how Glenn, his uh, colleague, whilst shaking and with anguish in his eyes, continued the moment-to-moment -moment description with, quote, Debris falling out of the sky, falling slowly, painfully, tragically, slowly towards the Atlantic Ocean just a few miles offshore." End quote. Wrestling with emotion, he continues, quote, This flight, which was to have been such a bright chapter 
in the history of the manned spaceflight program, turning in the flash of an instant into terrible, terrible tragedy. End quote. Frank then talks about Glenn remaining in the studio to continue the broadcast, and him looking introspectively as he ran out of the studio across the gravel to the press room where thoughts about his own application for a similar program that Krista had applied for teachers in space as a journalist in space program started rattling around in his head and his immediate thought to withdraw his application from this program after what he's just seen he says quote how close to history can you want to be I came face to face with some fellow reporters. No words were spoken as our eyes met." End quote. It was later discovered that the cold temperatures that morning had caused o-rings in both the rocket boosters and the fuel tank to be both damaged and compromised, which led heavily to the space shuttle's disintegration. We learned later on in behind-the-scenes discussions that engineers on the ground had concerns about the effects of the cold temperatures on the integrity of the O-rings in the SRB segment joints of the space shuttle. But these concerns were brushed aside and overawed by managers who cleared the Challenger to launch. President Reagan created a commission chaired by the former Secretary of State William P. Rogers to investigate the causes of the accident. The Commission's report, referred to as the Rogers Commission Report, summarised their findings of the technical causes of the accident, as well as systemic, organisational and cultural elements that led to the decision to launch Challenger on that day. The report provided recommendations to NASA on how to correct these deficiencies, but you have to assume that this was not the first time when these organisational issues had taken place, and unfortunately it surely wasn't going to be the last space disaster that would be caused by these problems. As it was such a big deal, this sort of catastrophic failure, the public needed some kind of reassurance. And surely enough, President Reagan eulogized the Challenger crew, quoting aviator and poet John Gillespie McGee, saying, quote, We will never forget them, nor the last time we saw them this morning, as they prepared for their journey and waved goodbye and slipped the surly bonds of earth to touch the face of God." End quote. The last words heard by anyone on the ground were from Michael Smith, who said, Go at throttle up. These were seven extraordinary human beings crewing the Challenger on that day. Whilst researching this story, I was able to find a hold of interesting images and stories. And there's a lot of stuff that touched me quite deeply. There was one about Judith Resnick, where on her first space mission, 
she thought it'd be nice to send a message to her dad back on back on the planet. So you see Judith floating, her dark curly hair kind of waving out from around her face, and on a floating little whiteboard, in black marker it just says, Hi Dad, with her floating next to it, smiling. Just letting her dad know that she's okay and safe. Ronald Owen McNair, being an accomplished saxophonist, had worked with the composer Jean-Michel Jarre on a piece of music for Jarre's then up-and-coming album Rendezvous. It was intended that he would record his saxophone solo on board the Challenger, which would have made McNair's solo the first original piece of music to have been recorded in space. I found a really touching quote on Ellison S. Onizuka's biography website. Uh, it goes, quote, Your vision is not limited by what your eye can see, but by what your mind can imagine. Make your life count, and the world will be a better place because you tried. End quote. And I feel that there is one story that I found during this research that demonstrates that quote beautifully uh, from Ronald McNair again, where, in the summer of 1959, at the tender age of nine years old, he refused to leave the segregated Lake City Public Library without being allowed to check out his books. After the police and his mother were called, all the while standing his ground against these unfair rules, he was allowed to borrow books from the library. The building that housed the library at the time, in honour of the courage of the young Ronald McNair, is now named after him. The families of the Space Shuttle Challenger's crew accepted and received the Congressional Space Medal of Honor from NASA, and four out of seven of the crew received compensation of $750,000 in annuities as recompense for the disaster. I'm sure that all of that would have been exchanged for the lives of their loved ones, however. The enduring legacy of the Challenger accident is in the Challenger Center for Space Science and Education, formed in 1986 by the families of the STS-51L astronauts. The Challenger Center and its worldwide network of Challenger Learning Centers first opened in Houston in 1988 and used space-themed learning and role-playing to cultivate student skill for future success. These experiences enhanced knowledge in science, technology, engineering and maths, and to date the Challenger Center has reached more than 5.5 million students globally. To honor the astronauts lost in the Challenger accident, as well as other space disasters, every year at the end of January, NASA holds a day of remembrance. The day allows NASA employees to reflect not only on the lives lost, but also on the circumstances that led to the accidents. 
and the resulting changes to NASA's operations and safety culture. It is also a time to ensure that everyone does their utmost to prevent future tragedies from happening through a heightened culture of safety and excellence. Sometimes images say a thousand words, and if into Google Images you search the Challenger space disaster, very quickly you will see the explosion of the vessel. Looking at it, it's not easy to get your head around the concentrated sadness within the blaze. On this list of images you'll also see Krista, standing beside her two children in a NASA trucker's cap, waving to supporters on the morning of the launch. Two powerful images that have lodged themselves deep in my brain. Thank you so much for tuning in to today's episode of the Toasted Tale podcast. In this show, I like to find stories that either need more attention or have gone under the radar, perhaps. I want to thank Andy for suggesting today's episode subject. It was incredibly interesting learning about the Challenger disaster, but it hasn't made me happy. It's incredibly sad that this was able to happen, especially when you learn that the concerns that led to the disaster occurring were mentioned and highlighted to higher members of staff. If in your busy lives you remember to take a moment and keep in your mind seven individuals braver than most trying to do something that most of us will never have the opportunity to do, push the boundaries of our own knowledge of science and the space that surrounds us. Francis Dick Scobie, Michael J. Smith, Ellison S. Onizuka, Judith A. Resnick, Ronald E. McNair, Krista McAuliffe, and Gregory B. Jarvis. Thank you. If you enjoyed listening to today's episode of the Toasted Tale podcast, then you can follow me on Twitter and Facebook. My handle is at Podcast Tale, and it's there where I post other episodes like this, and anything that I find interesting. So please follow me at Podcast Tale for more. If you enjoyed this content, then liking, leaving a comment, or sharing this episode with the people you care about is a really powerful way of getting the message to more people. Thank you to all who do that. I hope that you have a lovely rest of day, and that all you attempt goes successfully. I will speak to you all again soon, for another toasted tale by the fireside.